Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I am your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 153, we switch gears and we talk finances. I am joined by the Physician on Fire, or Financial Independence, Retire Early. His website can be found at physicianonfire.com. He and I discuss financial planning for physicians, including more specific topics such as credit cards and the biggest financial mistakes physicians make. A list of my financial disclosures are attached to this episode in the episode description. Physician on Fire does make income off of his website in the form of advertising. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now honored to be joined by one of our colleagues who is also an online blogger and a frequent podcast guest. Uh, that's Physician on Fire. Uh, Physician on Fire is a website that goes through um, FIRE, standing for Financial Independence Retire Early, run by Leaf, who's going to uh, tell us a little bit about um, his career and then uh, what FIRE is and how to achieve it. Um, Leaf has been featured in multiple places, including uh, the White Coat Investor, which many of our listeners are familiar with. Uh, run by Jim Dolly. Leaf is a frequent guest on the podcast as well as a blogger for that website, uh, guest blogging, uh, and has his own website at physicianonfire.com. Uh, Leaf, thanks again for your time and thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation and I am honored to be joining you today. So Leaf, uh, I always ask this question for our new guests. Uh, I always ask them, why did they become a retina specialist? But we're going to switch it around because you're an anesthesiologist. So tell us a little bit about your med school journey. Um, how did you end up as an anesthesiologist? And then we'll talk a little bit about um, uh, fire and, and how it applies to your life? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I went into medical school with a pretty open mind. I thought about pediatrics for a while. I was attracted to the uh, technology that radiology gets to use. I, that was one of my first elective rotations. And I thought there was some cool stuff they did, but I also thought the day moved kind of slow compared to my busier rotations on surgery and OB-GYN and some of the others. Um, I realized that I didn't love clinic. <laughs> it sounds like a process of elimination when I, I talk about it, actually. But uh, uh, I, I kind of came down to emergency medicine and anesthesia as having a lot of qualities of, of a job that I would be looking for. Because, oh, and I didn't like to be scrubbed in either for any length of time, more than about 10, 15 minutes, which is usually the length of the surgeries, or I'm sorry, the procedures that we do. Um, I did take uh, an anesthesia rotation in my third year. I was lucky to have that option as an elective and really enjoyed it, really uh, you know, learned a lot from the people I talked to who seemed to be pretty happy in their profession as anesthesiologists, and uh, took a second rotation and decided that was the way I was going to go. So let's talk about the idea of FIRE. So I, I mentioned it's financial independence, retire early. Um, how did this become a part of your life? And again, let's talk about maybe how you ended up even starting the blog and your website. Sure, yeah, and they're, they're very much tied together. It wasn't something that I strove for. Uh, I actually, for the most part, I've enjoyed my career. There have been a few unexpected turns that have you know, maybe soured me a little bit, and we can talk about those. But uh, it really came about when I was studying for a maintenance of certification examination and kind of got frustrated studying all these you know, minutiae that I really didn't use in my practice. And, and uh, I had stumbled across an article by this guy named, calls himself Mr. Money Mustache. And he had retired early at age 30 uh, from a career in software engineering. And I, I, you know, I saw the math that he, he outlined, which is, 
you know, if you have cash flow from your investments that covers your living expenses, you are financially independent. And if you're basing that on stocks and bonds, you know, which I'm invested in, if you have about 25 times what you normally spend in a year saved up, then you really don't have to work for money anymore if you don't want to. And of course, I wasn't ready to retire. I was only you know, about 10 years into my career, but uh, I did the math and I realized, you know, gosh, we're spending, you know, we, we have a paid off house. We have no debt spending 70,000 a year, give or take in a pretty low cost of living area, living pretty well on that and happy. And lo and behold, we were financially independent. I had more than 25 times that saved up right then and there. Uh, and so then I started really thinking about what I wanted the rest of my life to look like and started talking with my wife and, you know, we see our kids growing up fast and they were uh, at that time in kindergarten and first or second grade. But uh, yeah, we, we kind of came up with about a five-year plan then. And after about a year of just reading uh, not only that Mr. Money Mustache blog, but a half dozen or more others, and then discovering the White Coat Investor, who I know was a uh, guest on your show uh, earlier, you know, I, I decided that I would start sharing some of the ideas that I had been learning and, and and maybe inspiring other people to uh, maybe see if financial independence was something that uh, could be a possibility uh, for them. And so I started my own blog. It was a, just over three years ago, early 2016. And, uh, you know, the, the concepts that I'm talking about have proven to be pretty popular and uh, attracted a, a lot of uh, a lot of readers. And it's, and it's great. And I, I enjoy being in this position to help people in a very different way uh, than I do in my day slash night job as an anesthesiologist. Yeah, we're recording this on, on January uh, 29th, uh, 2018. And, you know, just last week, you know, Jim Dolly, the white co-investor, had a group podcast with you and uh, and himself and another colleague kind of with a group discussion. And, and one of the things you, you all referenced was, you know, people sometimes bringing up, what was it called? Uh, money shaming, right? Like this idea that um, people can sometimes be critical or or you know, almost be jealous because, and, and one of the things you guys all reference is talking about this isn't so much about talking about your successes, but sharing what you learned, right? It's, it's about kind of giving back, sharing what you learned and, and the constant learning part of it. I mean, I would say this, I mean, I think that, I think the most intimidating thing is, is as someone who isn't super financially literate, is just getting started. I mean, I think like fitness or any sort of thing that you look at, it can be overwhelmingly intimidating. I mean, you, see somebody uh, or see all this information and just sometimes you just mentally give up because you're like, I'm never going to actually know all of this. So where would you start? So if you have somebody who's a physician, you know, what, where do, what is the starting point for someone who's coming out of residency and they're like, I want to learn more about finances. Maybe I don't want to become fire. Maybe I love my job right now. Or I'm not even thinking right. ahead, but where do I even start so I don't get overwhelmed? And I've seen this with colleagues and friends where I've been like, oh, maybe you look at the White Coat Investor, this book, and some of them just, you know, they, they get that glazed look in their eye and they're like, I, I just can't handle this. What would be the best starting point to keep it simple for somebody? Yeah, and you can keep it simple. And gosh, what we do, what you do, what, you know, retinal surgeons and ophthalmologists and other physicians, uh, what we have learned and figured out is, is so much more complicated than money. And so, you know, there there is a financial services industry that, wants it to appear more complicated and complex than it really needs to be because you know then then they can uh, charge more for their services but but really it's not that difficult you mentioned the white coat investor the blog he also has the book which uh, you refer to and it's a great book it's called the white coat investor it's simple you can read it in one evening and maybe a few hours and you'll learn a ton uh, and from there you know there's a 
website called Bogleheads, which is based on the, the teachings of Jack Bogle, who founded Vanguard and, and recently passed away. Rest in peace. Uh, Bogleheads is a great resource. Uh, I can put a plug in for my own site. I do try to keep uh, money conversations kind of light and fun and, <laughs> as much as I can. Uh, introduce a little bit of humor uh, in, in certain places when I talk about things, but uh, I, I have some investing basics posts. I have some pretty uh, advanced stuff if you start talking about tax loss harvesting, the backdoor Roth, and all these other things. But I try to make it really approachable. Yo, let's, we're going to hit a bunch of topics. But one of the things we, I want to start with is um, the idea of, of financial independence, right? So you referenced that um, your costs, you know, you figured out your costs and you're like, you know, actually, we're, we paid off everything and our costs are 70000 a year, for example. Um, yeah. Jim actually wrote a blog post uh, just yesterday, and he talked about why investing is hard. Yeah. Um, and doctors check out the first box, which is you need to have, you know, you need to have money, right? You need to have money to invest. Doctors do have that income, but if you're spending all your money, then you don't have money to invest, and you can't be financially independent. But one of the other points he made was, you know, wealth is what you don't see was 0.6, and that basically was you can't become a millionaire spending a million dollars a year, right? Like being a millionaire is not living like a millionaire, unfortunately. So, right. So again, people need a carrot sometimes to motivate them. What are the advantages of being financially independent in terms of your career, in terms of your life, in terms of the decisions you're making? What are the advantages? Because I think sometimes we we don't see that long term advantage. And it's hard to make those day to day money decisions. No, you're right. Yeah, you know, but there are there certainly are some some really uh, key advantages too being in a position of financial independence. Um, the obvious one is that uh, work does become optional. Now, a lot of us do enjoy what we do and will keep doing it. Uh, some of us won't, or some of us will do something different, uh, but it gives you the option of doing something less. So you could work maybe part-time, you could switch to doing locums and spending half the year in Costa Rica, if that's what you wanna do. You can uh, maybe switch to academics or research. Maybe you wanted to do that, but chose to, uh, uh, go for the, the big bucks, and once you've saved up enough money, then uh, you don't need that income anymore. Uh, as far as career, it just gives you a lot of leverage. You know, you have the ability to walk away from any uh, position or any situation that you don't want to uh, be in. So, uh, you know, I think in negotiations, you you have what uh, you know some people call it "fu" money, right, uh, which right. isn't very kind. But uh, yeah, you say, well, I, I don't need this money. I don't need to take the call. I don't. You know, I'm just going to do something different. Uh, there are some simple things like I, I used to pay for term life insurance and disability insurance. And those are there to make sure that my family would be okay in my absence or that we would be okay if I couldn't work anymore. Uh, those are redundant once you have saved up enough to pay for the life that you have right now. And so that does save us, I don't know, $4,000 a year because we no longer pay those uh, policy premiums. You know, one of the interesting things is, right, and I think that one of the big, burnout's a big conversation in medicine right now. Mm -hmm. Everyone's talking about burnout, and there's been multiple reasons cited, recent Medscape surveys, maybe it's EMR, maybe it's decreased compensation, maybe it's more administration, but I think one of the biggest things I can speak personally or colleagues when we feel burned out is feeling trapped and feeling like, you know, yes, and you lose, you're in a great career and you're taking care of people, but you almost feel trapped by your situation. And it seems that financial independence, like you said, even if you keep working, kind of gets rid of that feeling that, you know, then you feel like you're doing it for the love of the game more than that because you have to. Oh, yeah, totally. Mentally, if that helps as well. 
Yeah, I wrote a blog post. I think I called it uh, "Saving and Spending to uh, Reduce Burnout." You know, and I, I think that the main thing is is saving money so that you are, like you said, in a position where uh, you're you're choosing to work, not that you have to work because you you built a life with a, a whole lot of payments involved and debts that you need to repay and that. Um, but there are you know ways targeted spending can help you with burnout. You know, once once you've saved up uh, enough of uh, a nest egg that. Additional dollars coming in are just really extra money uh, beyond what you think you need for retirement and whatnot. So, yeah, there's there's a, a pretty strong connection there, I think, and, and and feeling stuck is is where a lot of a lot of people are going to be, you know, early in their career because you've got student loan debt, you may have bought the doctor house, uh, you know, car payments, all these things that are, you know, some are optional, some are not, like the student loan piece. So, you know, I do encourage people to get on those rapidly and pay them off, you know, as quickly as you can and, and focus on those things and make strides there. You'll feel less stuck once you're debt free. You know, you'll feel less stuck once you have a, let's say a million dollar portfolio and, and it just keeps getting better from there. And then pretty soon your money starts making, you know, maybe as much or more as you do in your day job in a good year. And that's a pretty remarkable feeling too. Let's talk a little bit of a fire in the sense that I hear fire, and and we've all had this temptation, especially when we're busy or stressed. And some of that, some of us think, oh man, that means I need to, you know, I need to win the lotto. I need to to buy Bitcoin and hope it goes way up. <laughs> I need to. It, it almost seems counterintuitive, right? Because the things we always talk about, white coat investor, or even you know John Bogle, like talking about Bogle philosophy, which was you know slow and steady wins the race. You know, match the market. Mm-hmm. You know, just work on savings and be consistent. Automatic investing, all these things, which are exercise and patience and really boring but work. And then there's the idea: I want to retire early. I want to be financially independent. And those feel like they can be opposite sort of feelings. Um, so I think some people can hear fire and get the wrong impression and be like, oh, this means I need to, I need to absolutely cash in like right now, figure out a way to cash in. So achieving fire, right? You talked about paying off debt, but how do you balance that with your, your savings? You still take a very like Bogle like philosophy in terms of your savings and investments, um, given that you're investing a lot of it, maybe in money that has a long outlook. If you're investing in stocks, sometimes that's not money you want to touch for five or 10 or 15 years. So you can, you know, not have to worry about fluctuations in the market. How do you balance that with, again, uh, making enough passive income? What other sorts of investments besides stocks can help supplement your income? Yeah, I mean, you, you did a good job of uh, kind of outlining, you know, what, what I've done, which really is the slow and steady wins the race. And I, I, I recommend people try to live on half their take-home pay, which at a physician's income, you can live pretty well on, on half of what you bring home after taxes. You know, if you're making, let's say, three hundred dollars to $500,000 a year, which is probably not atypical for your audience, uh, after taxes, you may have two hundred dollars to uh, 350000 So you can live on $100,000 to $175,000 a year based on those numbers. And you can do, uh, you know, do pretty well on that in most parts of the country, uh, all but the very high cost of living areas. Uh, as far as, you know, trying to hit that home run, yeah, I would, I would not do that with a lot of my money. Um, it is a way to, to get there quicker if you're one of the lucky people that, that do strike it rich. Um, and you can also, you know, in, in this field, in ophthalmology in particular, and, and you know, that's a specialty where there's a, a lot of private practice, a lot of small uh, group practices or individual practices. You know, you have a lot of expertise there and you can do really well within the practice and earn quite a bit 
more than maybe an employed physician or an academic physician could make. Um, you know, the only kind of offbeat investments I've made are more for fun. I've mm-hmm. invested in a couple of microbreweries that uh, were, you know, close to home and I could kind of be involved and and it's just sort of a fun thing. And I get free beer, which is also fun. <laughs> yeah, I made sure I negotiated that into the uh, into the investment packet. But um, when you look at your investment portfolio as a whole, like what what component is that coming out? Is that coming out of like your emer? That's obviously not your emergency fund. That's not your core investment. As you always leave a certain percentage as like the quote unquote fund money to invest or yeah, play money of maybe up to five percent or so of the portfolio is probably. Probably a decent limit, unless you know if you're more, uh, you know, uh, risk uh, willing to take on risk, you can you can do more. But uh, I think you know the the, the smart money is is in uh, in index funds, you know, and, and and the rest you might hit a home run, but you might strike out, and you don't want to strike out with half of your portfolio. Let's talk a little bit about credit cards. Uh, and that's a weird topic to talk about. Yeah. We're going to talk about it because it's a part, it's a topic that sort of stresses me out. And I'll explain to you why. I feel like the investment part of it, at least personally for me, was easy to understand. You know, I read, you know, John Bogle's books and I go on Bogleheads or, and I see I, the math makes sense to me. And I'm like, okay, this is easy. I don't have to think about it. I just pick low expense funds and I invest consistently and I match the market and I'm just winning by being having a high savings rate and having investments that return. Um, yes. Not going for the home run. Credit cards stress me out. And, and part of this is, again, psychological because I know people who just absolutely win the credit card game, right? Who are just amazing at, at finding ways to use their miles and their points. And there's mm-hmm. so many different ways. Like I, I, it, it's, There's not a linear way to use credit cards. So I think it's something for years I struggled with even trying to figure out how to optimize your credit cards. Because, again, optimization is one of those things where I'll sit there for hours trying to pick the perfect credit card and figure out which credit card I use for which service. Which purchase? Yeah. So, so let's again start from basics. If if you're somebody, obviously, avoid debt, avoid really high interest cards you can't pay off. But if you're talking about from a reward standpoint, what are kind of the, the key nuggets to do? If you're a physician, you have a high income, you're spending. What are sort of the types of cards you should look for, and what are the biggest perks and benefits that cards can give you? Yeah, that's a good question, and I, I have a blog post called uh, "Credit Cards." For people who love free travel and money, yes, that's what I'm reading uh, because right there's, now. Yep. there's quite a bit of free travel and money available, and I think you can apply the Pareto principle here, where 20% of the effort gives you 80% of the results, and it sounds like you're going for uh, the extra 20% of the results with 80% more effort. And you know, I don't think you necessarily need to do that. Uh, it doesn't have to be perfect, but the most bang for your buck is in those welcome bonuses when you spend your 3000 or 4000 in the first 3 months and you get 50,000 to 100,000 points or miles and that can be worth anywhere from 500 to maybe 1200 or $1500 um and let's say you and your wife each get a card okay now you've got um you know 2 or 3000 dollars worth of reward from just one card and maybe you do that a couple three times a year right there you've got 10,000 or so in free travel and it's it's not a lot of effort. It's okay. Let's see you know, who flies out of our local airport. Delta, American. All right. Oh, look, there's an American card. There's a Delta card, and uh, and then you want to keep track of the cards that you have because you don't want right, to end up right. twenty cards that you're paying annual fees on all of them, and and it all happens automatically. And so, you know, you can downgrade from annual fee cards to no annual fee cards typically without 
actually canceling a card and, and affecting their credit rating. And a lot of people worry about their credit score with new cards, but I've gotten 20 plus new cards in the last three or four years, and it hasn't really affected my credit rating at all. It goes a little bit up, a little bit down, a little bit up. And, you know, having a large credit line that you don't use is actually good for your credit score. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, my recommendation, um, Chase cards are great, and they are one that they won't give you new cards if you've opened too many other cards or or even of their own cards within the last couple of years. So if you're just starting, I recommend start with Chase. Chase Sapphire Preferred is a great one with a low annual fee that's waived the first year. And you get points that are they're highly flexible and can be... Um, used for cash can be used uh, with different travel partners like Southwest, United Airlines, a bunch of good hotel chains too. So what do you like to do with your chase points? Like what, what, do you, what I mean, because usually it's better to, to transfer them somewhere. Is there, again, you can look at your airport or whatever, but is there something that you think is the hi higher yield options for those points that, because again, the, the reward store gives you so many different options for how to use them. Yeah. If you, if you fly Southwest or United, um, those are good travel partners that you can get one point per uh, mile, one mile per point. You can book travel directly through a Chase portal and then they give you, for every point you use, they give you like 1.25 cents. So a uh, thousand points would be worth $125 if you have the preferred card. If you have the reserve card, which has a higher annual fee, most of which is offset by uh, by getting reimbursed for travel expenses on the card. I know we're getting into a lot of <laughs> fine details, but then you get uh, 1.5 cents per point used in their travel portal. So it's really flexible, I guess, is the point. Um, you can use them as cash. You can get more for your money if you use their portal. You can sometimes get six times or 10 times more if you go through a, you know, one of those travel partners and, and get one of those, say, business class to Europe kind of trips that would have cost you 10 grand, but only cost you $1,500 worth of points or something like that. Let's talk about the last thing, which I, I love, is your idea of the four physicians and then the $10 million dream. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit. So first of all, what is the $10 million dream? And then what, did, what is the four physicians, this, this section of your website? And and how do you use it to educate? Sure, yeah. So the $10 million dream is a post I wrote based on, and this was before I knew about fire and before the hospital, I took my first permanent job. That went bankrupt and I got sued for being on the board and all this oh, other nonsense. And <laughs> so I, I was more idealistic and I thought I'd be working well into my 50s, maybe 60 year old, and uh, just doing compound interest math in my head using the rule of 72 and kind of knowing our savings rate. I realized we're, we're probably going to be worth uh, 10 million, you know, at this pace, you know, sometime maybe in my mid to late fifties or sixties. And then since then I've realized, well, I could do that, but there's not much I would do differently with $10 million that I would do with a few million dollars, which is kind of where we're at now. So, um, but I did write uh, a post and made this calculator. We can figure out how long it will take you to get to that $10 million point. But that's kind of where the whole four physicians, uh, series comes in where I, I created four different positions, one that's quite frugal, one that's uh, moderate, one that spends a bit more than that, and one that spends almost all that he makes. And just looking at the timelines to financial independence uh, based on their separate savings rates mm -hmm. and then applying different situations. One gets divorced, one decides to start spending less, one decides to start spending more, and then and then I just work with spreadsheets to uh, look at what the effects of these different life changes would be. But the bottom line with the whole 
point of the, the post in the series is that the higher the percentage of money you save, the sooner you're going to have options to do whatever you want. And one of those posts is on taking a sabbatical, one's on working part-time. You know, like I said, you have that you have that option, you have that leverage. Work can become optional. And again, I, I focus more on the financial independence part than the retire early part. And I've kind of put myself in a situation that even if I retire from medicine, uh, if I want to keep blogging, I still am, I still kind of have a job. <laughs> you know, it's a fun one. It's a very different one than, than what I do uh, in the OR. But yeah, you know, retirement is, is just one of those words that a lot of people have a certain vision of it. And, and it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Last thing I'm going to ask you, and Leif, you're married, correct? Yes, two kids. So, so um, yep. when you're married, and I'm not married, but just thinking about all my colleagues who are and looking ahead, I mean, if you guys aren't on the same page, and it's unlikely you're going to be completely on the same page, there's going to have to be some give and take and some compromise. And and finance is a weird thing because it's very weird and it, socially odd. We don't usually talk about this when we're dating or when we meet people to figure right. out what their financial philosophy is. Are you boglehead or... You know, are you a millionaire next door person? I mean, you don't really talk to people about this. How often do you and your spouse, or, and what do you recommend in terms of couples planning together, right? So how much of this do you do independently? How much do you do together? Because when you're a couple or when you have kids, I mean, the savings rate isn't just you deciding, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to save this much. Of this course. Month, right? So how do you figure that out together? Yeah, well, I mean, I got pretty lucky. I, I uh, married a gal who was naturally frugal uh, and a, has a whole lot of under, other wonderful qualities, <laughs> very attractive and fun and smart and all that good stuff. But uh, but she doesn't like to spend uh, a lot of money. So uh, our, our values align uh, quite well in that respect. Um, but you do need to be, uh, you know, on similar pages, right? You, you, you can't have one spouse spending all kinds of money and the other trying to save all kinds of money because you're just going to be working against one another. And that can obviously lead to marital strife. Um, you know, some people have like monthly, you know, they call it budget meetings or budget parties, which, right, right. uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting idea. Um, that's not something we've done because we do jive pretty well, uh, when it comes to money matters. But if you're not on the same page, I think maybe, Maybe monthly would get to be a bit much, but maybe a quarterly, like, all right, here's where we're at. Then the current net worth calculation, here's about what we've spent over the last quarter, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, and just be aware of not only where you're at, but what your future goals are together, you know, as a couple, as a family, and, and how you're going to achieve them. So, you know, it's hard to approach a spouse and say, well, I need you to cut your spending by 50% because that's not going to fly. But if you get together and say, so, you know, what if I started working part-time and we could travel six months a year, would that be something to be interested in? Or, you know, what, what, what do you want life to look like in in 10 or 20 years? Do you want to stay home with the, you know, kids if we have kids, you know, and then how do you make that happen financially? What are your dreams and, and, how can you achieve them? And then cutting out some of those luxuries, some of those uh, things you've gotten accustomed to maybe might be a little more palatable when you realize why you're doing it and what the end end result could be. Sure. Well, I lied. I got one more question for you and then I'll let you go. Uh, Last question. If you had to pick, what is the biggest single mistake or biggest thing that you think doctors graduating residency should change or avoid. So uh, my point is, if you had to give one message, let's say it's your kids and they're they're graduating medical school, one message to them 
on something that's important, what would it be? I mean, there's so many different things and concepts, but what do you think is the most critical thing in terms of becoming financially independent? Mm, I can only choose one. Can only choose I one. Would, I would choose housing. I would choose wisely. I would start by renting with your first job because as most of us know, I think at least half of people end up leaving that job for one reason or another within the first three years. And that's uh, something that we all assume is going to be the other half of the population, not me. But a lot of people, they, they, they can afford to uh, get a loan for a really nice large house straight out of residency, and they lose a lot of money on it. And I did it too. My first job, I, I built a big you know, 4,000 square foot home on the water and after the hospital went bankrupt, they, well, there was no one in that small town to even buy a home like that. So we were stuck with it for years until uh, the Cadillac dealership guy bought the house from us. So, yeah, so be smart with housing. Don't uh, build or buy the palace right when you get out of residency. Put that money towards student loans instead. I kind of I kind of cheated there. I, I no, that's fine. I, I'm okay with it. Put you in a tough spot. Uh, he's Physician on Fire. You can find his website at physicianonfire.com. We'll put a link up on the website as well. Um, and there's so much more we could have talked about. Avoiding the hedonic treadmill, mm-hmm. um, you know, frugality. You've got stuff on taxes. I mean, this is just a wealth of information. So people want to learn more. It's a great resource. Leaf, thank you so much for doing this. And if people like this and you want to hear from Leaf again, let us know. And uh, if he has time, he'll come back. So thank you again for your time. Thank you, Jay. It was a pleasure to chat with you. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 150 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. You'll also find our blog, Equal Round and Reactive Lessons from Our Pupils. We've rolled out a new feature where two of our bright medical students, Mike Benincasa and Amy Klusterbohr, reflect on the latest episode and offer their perspective. On the website, you can sign up for our mailing list to get updates on the most recent episodes. At the bottom are links to subscribe in the Apple Podcast Store as well as Google Play. You can also like our Facebook page or find us in the Apple Podcast Store and Google Play. We're on Twitter at Retina Podcast and do contact us click on the contact us link on our website or email us at retinapodcast at gmail.com. Feedback is great and that's how it gives us ideas for new episodes and what we can do better. We also appreciate everyone who subscribes to the iTunes store. If you can leave a positive review, that's very helpful. Many thanks to the Physician on Fire for joining me today. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, Mike Benacosta, and Angela Chang for producing a great episode. Thank you, listeners, for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. This is straight from the cutter's mouth.